Stay hungry, stay foolish. Seven out of 10 new products fail to deliver on expectations. Our guest's book aims to reverse that statistic. In the tradition of his global bestseller, Business Model Generation, this practical guide contains a library of hands-on techniques for rapidly testing new business ideas. How systematically testing business ideas dramatically reduces the risk and increases the likelihood of success of any new venture or business project. It builds on the internationally popular bestseller Business Model Canvas and Value Proposition Canvas by integrating assumptions mapping and other powerful lean startup style experiments. Testing business ideas shows leaders how to encourage an experimentation mindset and make experimentation a continuous, repeatable process. We welcome author of Testing Business Ideas, a field guide for rapid experimentation, Alex Osterwalder. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we launch into the book, this is your latest of a series of book, Alex. Let's share some of the underlying concepts of your work. For example, managing or exploiting the existing business while exploring the new one. These two modes require very different mindsets, different methodologies, and different skill sets. Absolutely. So the challenge is, you know, as soon as you are beyond the startup mode and you have a business, you start making money, you're scaling it, and you're successful, well, you have to think about reinvention already because things are changing very fast and it's very hard to stay ahead. And the bigger you get, the more successful you are. Let's say you're an established company like Nestle, uh, Bayer, you know, just a big company. Then you actually forget a little bit how to reinvent yourself. Doesn't mean you're going to forget how to do innovation, but it's usually a more efficiency type of innovation. And I like to say that companies get really good at getting better at what they do with efficiency innovation. But all that will happen is that they more efficiently die with the dying business model. So companies have to learn how to reinvent themselves while they are managing the existing business. It's not either or, right? It's exploitation, management, execution, while you're already inventing the next thing. And, you know, there are very few companies that do that extremely well. The usual suspect is, uh, is uh, Amazon. But I have a, a new favorite example, which is Ping An, a Chinese company, because in seven years, they transformed themselves from a banking and insurance company into a real tech player that built the biggest health platform in the world. So imagine that, right? That company coming from banking and insurance, we'd say, well, how did that work? Well, because they really create this exploit, explore culture, and they experiment a lot, and they do a lot of testing of ideas. A lot of them fail, but then they have some big breakthroughs. So Good Doctor is one of their health platforms. It's the biggest health platform on the planet, 170 million users. And remember, that used to be a simple you know, um, banking and insurance conglomerate. So it's possible even for banks and insurances, so it should be possible for everybody. You mentioned there Nestle, and I love the example of Nestle. You've used it before. And Nespresso is a great example of a new business model moving beyond products to services. And even after exploring, creating Nespresso and exploiting it, they forgot to reinvent and their patents expired, etc. I'd love if you shared a little bit about this. Yeah. So, you know, if you take an established company like Nestle, biggest food company in the world, 
you know, they're world-class at doing what they're doing and they're very good at improving that. So that's why they've been around for 150 years. But their big breakthrough innovations like Nespresso, that was almost 40 years ago, right? At least three decades ago. They haven't been able to create the same kind of breakthrough kind of innovation. And that's because at their core, they don't have this exploit explore. And, you know, the, the new CEO, Mark Schneider now is very good, again, at managing an existing portfolio, made some very smart acquisitions. They acquired the rights of Starbucks to, to uh, commercialize Starbucks products around the world um, outside of the Starbucks coffee store. So very brilliant stuff to Im- improve what they have, but uh, not, so, not so good at reinventing themselves. And Nespresso is a good example of an extremely successful brand a new business model, which is very different from what uh, Nestle had at its core. But they were really preoccupied with growing and uh, kind of forgot, in, in quotes, <laughs> to, to reinvent themselves. So it's not easy, right? Again, the more successful you are, the more risk adverse you get, the harder it gets to reinvent yourself. So that's the challenge. How do I you know, recreate an innovation culture, an exploration culture, while I'm managing the core. Because again, it's not either or. You can't abandon the core. But the, the challenge is that many, many business models in many industries are expiring. Banking, pharmaceuticals, food. The business models are radically changing and there are a lot of disruptors out there. So if you don't change, you're really at risk of getting disrupted. Yeah, and I love what you say. Business models are expiring as quickly as yogurts in the fridge. The difference is with the yogurt, you know the expiry date. With business models, you don't. So you better stay ahead. So there is no, innovation is not an event. It's a continuous thing that needs to be in your DNA. So it's not making one or two big bets. That's the innovation myth. Oh, I just need to find the right idea. No, it's about creating an innovation engine, creating a growth funnel and that's where, where companies are, I would say, not as good as they could be today. Uh, a couple of good examples that we can talk about where companies started and they have good results, but very few so far that I would say, you know, reach the level of what we call the invincible company. And it's interesting because you mentioned Nespresso and Nespresso had this technology sitting there for quite some time. And it wasn't until there was a burning platform where they were in trouble that it was dusted off the shelf and brought out. I thought this was really interesting for business to realize because if it was in their DNA, they'd be constantly uncovering and searching these new product innovations instead of having to do it because the Titanic is sinking. We can put it into con- in a bigger context, right? So most companies, even startups, but in particular also established companies, when they innovate, they think technology, they think product, they think services. And that's, you know, in particular, technology is kind of a subset of innovation. It's a small field. My favorite example is still the Nintendo Wii, my, my all-time favorite innovation example, maybe. Because when Nintendo launched the Wii, the, the Nintendo Wii, it was actually, from a technology point of view, an inferior gaming console to the competitors because they used off-the-shelf technology. Now, what did they do right? They figured out a different business model for that platform. They targeted casual gamers, an underserved market, with very fun and simple games that you control through motion control. So that was the Nintendo Wii. The graphics are not so good. The processing power is terrible. But casual gamers don't care about that. They care about simple games. 
So what happens is, you know, if you look at the business model, inferior technology in the in the console, but reaching a larger market, casual gamers with a cheap console, so they would start earning money on the consoles and the royalties from game developers. So inferior technology, superior growth and profits. Who thinks of innovation that way, right? So the big lesson here is innovation is much larger than just new products, technologies, and services. It's great value propositions embedded in great business models. That's where the opportunity is. So it's about creating value for customers and capturing value with the right business model. So it sounds kind of trivial the way I'm saying it, but if we look at the innovation processes in companies, they focus on products and technologies. Again, that's a small subset of the innovation potential out there. So what I like to say often is, you know, if you just take 10% of the research and development budget of most companies, which are huge, you know, huge budgets, billion, billion dollar budgets, they just took 10% of those, invested it in exploring value propositions and business models. I bet many of the companies could easily double their profits, easily. It's just that there's no tradition of doing business R&D. So testing business models and value propositions is what I call business R&D. And there's no tradition of that yet. More and more companies are starting to do that, but it really is, you know, a whole new field. So um, companies need to to look at that in a quite different way and, and do some things quite drastically differently if they want to succeed with that. But it's not a money problem. The money's there. You just need to allocate it correctly. And investing when you're in paradise, when you're in times of wealth is really, really important because an example you give of a business that is not the sexiest business in the world is Hilti Power Tools. I love this one because everybody can see how even a power tool company can reinvent themselves and produce new revenue streams and a new whole face of the business. Absolutely. And what they did well is, you know, a very fundamental shift from products to services. And we call those business model shifts. So what happened at Hilti is that they started, you know, they continued producing machine tools for builders, very good brand, very powerful tools, uh, very reliable. But the problem was they were under pressure from, from competitors and low-cost competitors around the world. So they asked themselves, what are customers really struggling with? And it turns out it's really about having the right tools in the right place at the right time so the construction sites don't shut down. So they said, well, with new tools, we're not going to solve you know, those challenges that our customers have, the construction companies. We need to offer them a service where they can rent a fleet of tools and we guarantee the right tool, right place, right time. So we take away one of their biggest headaches. So they shifted towards services at the center and customers, you know, would less and less buy tools. And they were so excited about that, that they would even, the customers would even want Hilti to manage their competitors' tools. So very powerful shift. And, you know, that's one of many shifts that are possible. If you take the iPhone, everybody sees the technology innovation when Steve Jobs launched the iPhone. But what really made the iPhone and iOS such a dominant player over time, practically non-disruptable, is when they added the App Store and hundreds of thousands of developers and millions of applications, that is impossible to copy or replicate overnight. That business model aspect, so moving from selling stuff, phones, towards becoming a platform for applications for phones, 
That's what made them virtually non-disruptable. So these kinds of shifts are extremely, I would say, underexplored. So senior leaders need to deeply understand business models in order to do a better job. I think this is such an easy win to think about these things. Obviously, to implement them, different question, right? You need to experiment. Not everything's going to work. But there's such a huge potential there that, you know, in many industries, the first mover will have a huge advantage because so few companies really think about, you know, how they could transform their business model. Let's dive into the book a little bit more now. So let's share the latest of your series from the Strategizer series. But you start the book by saying it's written for corporate innovators, startup entrepreneurs, and solopreneurs. I think this is really important because oftentimes a solopreneur will see that and think, oh, that's not for me. That's for big corporate innovation. But this book appeals to everyone. Even when I was reading about the experiments, even for somebody working in marketing, there's so much value in this book. And I'd love if you'd start with a definition of those three, what a corporate innovator is in your eyes, what's a startup entrepreneur and what's a solopreneur? Absolutely. You know, for all three segments, if you want, they have a very similar job to be done. They need to go from idea to validated idea or even idea to value proposition and business model, validate that and then scale that. It's actually the very same thing for a solo entrepreneur, somebody who has a day job and might decide that, start to explore a potential new business, or just you know explore a small idea. Same thing for an innovation team in the company or you know the entire innovation funnel. It's about testing ideas to reduce the risk and uncertainty in order to invest in something that could really work. So the challenge is very very similar from. The solopreneur who don't has funding does this as a side job. This the funded uh, venture capital backed entrepreneur with a small team, or the innovation team within a company um, that wants to scale this practice. They all have the same challenge. And the reason why we wrote testing business ideas, the book that already came out, is because we believed. You know, first we always ask, why does the world need another book? Right? There's another book. There are millions of business <laughs> out there. The world doesn't need another book, except if you really believe you have something to add. And what we've seen is great adoption of the ideology, if you want, of the lean startup. So Steve Blank, who launched this whole movement with customer development, has done a phenomenal job spreading this around the world. And then Eric Ries, his student, made that popular with the lean startup book. But we saw that there's still some space for improvement in how teams do this to help them get more professional in how they test. So we wrote this book with an entire testing library. So we would uh, help people go beyond just talking to customers, doing interviews to do more sophisticated experiments and ultimately learn how to systematically de-risk their ideas. Because innovation is not risky if you do it right. You make calculated bets because you're experimenting and testing. It's not about the idea. It's not about a crazy idea. It's about changing the idea or adapting the idea based on what you learn in the field. So many of us jump straight into action and into doing. And you tell us too many entrepreneurs, innovators, and solopreneurs execute ideas prematurely because their ideas look great in presentations, they make sense in spreadsheets, and the business plan seems to work. And the task for many may sound counterintuitive to an innovator, especially 
but it is ultimately to reduce risk and uncertainty. My favorite example is still a company called Better Place. So Better Place wanted to make electric vehicles popular around the world. And they asked, well, what's the biggest pain of electric vehicles? Well, you got to charge them, right? So that takes time. So they said, what if we built a battery swapping infrastructure, so battery swapping stations where you can drive in, you can swap your batteries and drive out. That would take away the pain immediately. So they started making a business plan, wonderful projections, unbelievable vision, because, you know, it's great to make, uh, have this vision of making electric vehicles popular throughout the world. And then they started to raise money. They had a, a very experienced executive, Shai Agassi, who was going to become CEO of SAP. He took over um, and he raised quite a bit of money. And then they started building with the money that they raised the infrastructure. Well, it turns out they went belly up because they didn't test the most fundamental assumptions underlying that beautiful business plan. The spreadsheets looked amazing and they were able to raise money, but venture capital money is not a revenue stream. Ultimately, you need to make money, right? So they lost or burned, you could say, $850 million because they had an amazing business plan, great vision, and a beautiful kind of Excel spreadsheet and slide deck. But that's not enough. It's not about the idea. The idea was amazing. The problem is they didn't test the underlying assumptions and they didn't adapt the value proposition and business model. They could have succeeded, I believe, if they had adapted the assumptions because if you look at Tesla today, there are quite some similarities. It's not that they wanted to build a battery swapping infrastructure, but you have Tesla charging stations throughout the world today. That costs a lot of money. But Tesla had a very different approach. In their DNA, they started testing their first model, the Roadster, from the start. So testing their assumptions. Would people want a, a powerful electric vehicle? What kind of vehicle should this be? They tested and tested and adapted and adapted. And that's why they were successful and Better Place wasn't. So we need to learn how to stress test our ideas and adapt them into value propositions that customers want and business models that can scale. Because ultimately, ideas are free. They're everywhere. You can make them look good, but it's not about raising money. And last thing, maybe, <laughs> I start rambling maybe, right, because I get excited about this stuff. <laughs> Vinod Kosla, the very well-known um, investor out of Silicon Valley, co-founder of Sun Microsystem Systems, he likes to say, if you give a team too much money, if you raise too much money, you actually decrease the probability of success. And why is that? Because teams, when they have too much money, they start building stuff. They start executing prematurely. So it's actually good at the early stages to have small amounts of money to continuously test and continuously adapt your initial idea, your initial uh, slide deck or pitch deck, if you want, or business model canvas or value proposition canvas in the best case, and constantly adapt that. And that's a tradition that needs to develop even further. I think it's more and more um, ingrained in the startup culture. We need to bring this into large companies. And the, the lean startup kind of way of framing it, build, measure, learn, is not ideal because guess what? If you say build, measure, learn, a lot of teams are going to start to build something when they should yeah. invest a lot more before they build anything. That's what I love about your work and indeed, Eric Reese, and we've had Steve Blank on the show only a few weeks ago. It's really paint by numbers, and you really do work extremely hard to simplify these concepts. 
there's no excuse anymore. This work should be taught in business schools. It should be then integrated into businesses, especially those more crystallized, older businesses. But let's share the iterative process. You mentioned build, measure, learn there. But more particularly, what makes good business concept design? As you say, we try to simplify it down. So we kind of looked at this process again and said, okay, let's, let's, let's look at the essential parts of going from idea to real business. There are two main things you need to focus on. One is business design, your value proposition and business model. You shape that. And the other one is testing. And I deliberately don't say product or service or so because that's just one component. So I say business design. Shaping your value proposition and business model, that's one aspect. Testing it is the other. And each one has three steps. And you go through those continuously all the time. Business design is basically very simple. You ideate around what could the value proposition and business model be around a market opportunity, around a, uh, a technology, whatever. Once you've done that kind of brainstorming, you shape it into a business prototype, a business model canvas and or a value proposition canvas. And you go very fast. You don't write a 40-page business plan. You don't need that at this stage. You just make a business model canvas, a value proposition canvas. If you don't know what that is, you can Google it. You'll find, find that online. After that, you assess your business design. You ask, okay, am I happy with this? Is the market big enough that I'm addressing? Is my business model good enough in terms of recurring revenues? And do the numbers look good? Can I make more money than I spent? But this is all a fantasy still, right? So within an hour, maybe half a day, depending on you know, where you are, you can, you can map this out. Then you ask, okay, am I happy? And when you're happy, you should immediately go to the testing phase. And the testing phase, to use Steve Blank's words, is as simple as getting out of the building. And sometimes that's metaphorical, sometimes that's literal. So three, three steps in the testing phase, three simple steps. And it definitely not build as the first one. So the first step is you need to ask the question, you need to hypothesize, what are the most fundamental things that need to be true for your idea to work? What are the things that need to be true for your idea to work? That gives you your hypothesis, your assumptions. So, for example, that this customer segment is big enough. For example, that this customer segment has that particular challenge. For example, that this customer segment even has a budget for the type of solution that you're providing. That this customer segment is willing to pay X dollars. Or you can take it from the technology side, which is usually not what you start with, but that's also assumptions that you can make the technology work, that you can get the patents or intellectual property that you need to scale it, et cetera, et cetera. So once you have those hypotheses, you need to ask, which one is the most fundamental one, the most important? I'll give you a silly example. Let's say you're going to make a new iPad app to help people achieve their goals. Well, maybe you want to first test the assumption that the people you're targeting actually have an iPad app. So it sounds silly, right? But you need evidence for that. Otherwise, you're going to start developing something without having tested the most fundamental assumption that the people you're targeting have that device. So I'm just taking a silly example to show you a fundamental assumption. You need evidence for that, right? Once you know which two, three assumptions you should test first, and it's usually not right away some kind of the solution assumption, it's often around the customer segment, you know, jobs, pains, and gains. Then you go and design your experiment. 
which could be as simple as an interview, which could be something that we call a card sort. You put a couple of features or problems in front of a customer and they start selecting those that matter and prioritize, et cetera. You, you conduct an experiment. You design an experiment, then you conduct an experiment. From your experiment, you learn, and whatever you learn <laughs> will lead you to a decision. And that's the most important point. That's where the business design and the testing intersect. You make decisions based on what you just learned in the, in the field. Do I need to go back to business design, reshape my business model or value propositions, or do I continue with testing and address the next assumption? Because guess what? Those teams that do this really well, they run 10, 15, 20 experiments. Not just, you know, oh, I did two interview series and then they're happy. No, they do 20 different types of experiments. Landing pages, pre-sales, uh, Google searches. They look at search data. They look at CRM data, et cetera, et cetera. So this is now more like a profession <laughs> than what we used to have five, 10 years ago, where it was a little bit more just an ideology. This is now something where we can even measure the reduction of risk and uncertainty. So it's almost getting boring because now we can almost call it innovation accounting. And when we <laughs> use the word accounting, we're probably not in the Wild West anymore. We're getting towards the boring territory. But that shows that this is becoming a profession if you do it right. And also you're getting buy-in then from the finance team, for example, because one of the biggest difficulties is bringing the old business who's protecting revenues as they are today or they were yesterday into a new world and reducing that risk and showing that you're doing this work to reduce the risk is probably a huge first step. And you tell us to consider three types of risk, which I'd love if you'd share. The first is desirability risk, the second feasibility risk, and the last is viability risk. And I would add a fourth one, which we put in in our upcoming book, The Invincible Company, which is adaptability risk. So the way you want to look at it is you have an idea, you shape it with your value proposition canvas and business model canvas, and then you need to ask what needs to be true. And that will give you all of the different assumptions. And you can kind of classify them into four types of risk. The first one is, and this doesn't come from us. A lot of people have talked about the types of risks before. What, what we did differently is we, we show how it relates to the business model and how you can systematically test this. So first type of risk, desirability. Do customers even want what we have to offer? Can we, you know, um, and manage the right channels to even reach them? Can we acquire them? That's all desirability risk. And then you have feasibility risk. Can we build it? You know, can we manage the key resources? Can we manage the activities? Can we get the partners on board that we need? Those are all feasibility risks. And then you have viability risks, which is at the end of the day, can we make more money from this than we spend? So it's not just about figuring out revenue streams and uh, pricing the risks related to making money, but also costs. You know, can we figure out or do we have some evidence that we know how much it's going to cost us? And then when I say adaptability risk, it's, it's about timing. Is this the right idea to the right moment to launch this idea? Is the infrastructure out there in the field, et cetera, et cetera? Is it macroeconomically the right moment? So desirability, feasibility, viability, and adaptability are all the different types of risks. And you need to find evidence for all four of these categories to show this idea could really work. And often you start with desirability risk. But if you look at companies today, they actually test feasibility risk first. Can we build it? But can we build it is not the first thing you want to do. Because imagine you invested 
a half a million, a million or more showing that you can build it. And then you learn that nobody wants it. That sounds really stupid. Like why would anybody build something nobody wants? If you look at the statistics, seven out of 10 product and service launches don't deliver on expectations because people first test if they can build it and then they launch it and then they don't meet expectations. So this research comes from uh, Simon Kutcher, the pricing firm, and they clearly show there's a problem there. Now, the problem is not because people are too stupid and they, they build something nobody wants. It's because their processes actually condemn them to first test if they can build it. So small, funny anecdote, you know, I always ask in my master classes and talks when I have a room full of people, I ask them, who of you is working on a product or service that nobody wants? And you <laughs> always have people putting hands up. So are these people stupid? Like, why would they work on that? No, it's because there's another thing that, you know, in, in established companies we have, we're really bad at killing projects. So projects that should be killed <laughs> are going on. So we need a better way to manage these different types of risks and kill them based on evidence or not evidence, not based on, oh, this is a great idea, somebody's opinion, some manager thinks this is a great idea, or the CEO thinks this is a great idea. Opinions don't matter in innovation. We should make much more evidence-based investments. Of course, we need vision and exploration, but we need to make evidence-based decisions. Yeah, and I can see why so many people fall in love with their idea and they resist the stage of hypothesizing and finding evidence to see if it's working or not, because I'm sure this is very difficult stage for people because they're intensely interrogating the idea before it even gets to the experiment phase at all. There's lots of biases that get in the way. We developed a tool exactly for that. So we created a scorecard. It's called the Innovation Project Scorecard. And basically on that scorecard, you have questions related to desirability, feasibility, viability, and adaptability. And we don't ask, you know, do you think this is a desirable? We ask, what's your evidence? And then you have to score. <laughs> and do we have a lot of evidence from a lot of experiments that customers want this? Or do we have no evidence? It's just a belief. And what you see is when teams have to score their projects, it's like a mirror in their face, which it still could be a good idea, but when you have no ed evidence, it's just an idea. The more evidence you have, the more likely it is to become a successful business. One of my colleagues at Strategizer, Tendai Vicky, also a well-known author, he wrote a book that was successful called The Corporate Startup. He does this with teams. You know, Sometimes when he manages a group of people with different innovation projects, he gets the senior leaders get all of the teams to score their projects in terms of evidence, desirability, feasibility, viability, and adaptability, and the score is from zero to 10. And what often happens is all of the teams score themselves somewhere between zero to three in terms of the evidence they have that this is actually a good idea, not just on paper a good idea, but evidence. And what that means is immediately the teams Get, get a, you know, have a mirror in their face that shows it's very risky. We don't know if we should invest in these ideas. We better test more. So that's why we developed this scorecard. So every team can immediately score how much evidence they have, how much they de-risk the idea. And we also give it to senior leaders. So when they 
look at an idea. They don't look at it, the idea from do I like it or do I not like it, but they look at it from the perspective, does this team have evidence that this is actually a good idea to invest in? So we have to train senior leaders to look at projects in a different way. Because again, in innovation, you invest differently than in execution. If you're building a new warehouse, the experience of somebody who's done it two, three times matters a lot and you can make opinion-based decisions. In innovation, actually opinion from the past, your experience from the past can prevent you from seeing the future. So you need to make evidence-based investments, not opinion-based investments. Yeah, and oftentimes we can make metrics and analysis and data tell the story we want it to. And when it comes to insights, you emphasize there is a difference between looking at something and looking for something. Yeah, we really get teams to start to tell their story, you know, from this is our vision, but then, okay, how many different experiments did we do to prove, for example, that people have a budget for a certain uh, solution? And when you have different data sets, then you know it's not just about twisting the data, but you have different experiments that all you know, show the same kind of pattern. So it really becomes more reality than just opinion because you can make data say anything you want if it's just one data set. But when you start to have data from three, four different experiments, make it concrete. First one is a series of interviews. Second one is something you did with a call to action on a landing page. People had to sign up with their email. Third one is pre-sales. Fourth one is simulated sales maybe in a store where you put a product in the shelves that is not mass market yet, then you have patterns you can discover from three, four different experiments for the same assumption that people actually want this product. This is now becoming a profession. It's not one interview series or so that can prove if this is a good idea or not. It's 10, 15, or 20 different types of experiments that you need to run to de-risk. And then people say, yeah, but this is going to be costly. It's going to take time. No, because you go very fast. You go very fast and you don't hire an agency to do it for you. You do it yourself. You have to roll up your sleeves. And that's sometimes hard for senior leaders to swallow because they haven't been leaving the building for a long time, you know, uh, designing experiments, talking to customers, uh, doing this or that. This is a complete change in attitude. It's different from management. This is entrepreneurship. And one of the things you talked about is the speed of change, for example, if I'm a larger organization in particular, and I say this because these are the types of organization who have the budget to create an insight-based decision. So they may hire a company to go and do some research that will feed a decision. And you say that these decisions based on insights must be made really quickly because their value expires really quickly and that speed is increasing. Yeah, and I would take Steve Blank's point of view. He's very clear there. He says you can't outsource customer development. You can't outsource lean startup. You can't outsource testing. Why is that? When you hire an agency, an outside agency, and big companies do this all the time, right, for market testing in execution, when they do marketing campaigns, that there it's okay. It's a different ballgame. When you explore, you say, okay, this is our assumption we need to test it. We need to do an interview series. If you hire an outside agency to do the interview series for you, they will go and execute maybe 100 interviews. But maybe after 10 or 15 or 20, 
you've already learned so much that you need to take a completely different direction. And if after 100, you know, you hear a very clear signal, the agency can never tell you in the same way that clear signal than if you had talked to customers in the field. So you can't outsource this kind of stuff. Imagine if you're a VC and you invest in a startup and they say, first thing, oh yeah, we're going to hire um, Bain you know, to, to do this kind of work for us. But well, you would run as an investor, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for so sure. You can't outsource innovation exploration. What you can do when if you if you want to outsource it, you invest in a startup. That's the only way you can actually outsource this. But you can't use agencies for this. That's why we also believe when we write these books, the methods are the most important. And when we accompany uh, large companies like Bayer, we do it as coaches. But they need to do the heavy lifting. You can't take this away from them. You can't hire consultants to do the testing for you. The outside parties can coach you, but you need to put that, you know, make that time available. And that's the thing that, that people don't always do. So in established companies, getting time from people is more difficult than getting money. So while there's big innovation budgets sometimes, what we don't have is time budgets. People need to invest the time to experiment, not to run workshops, but to get out of the building and to test. That's the biggest challenge. And I'm sure anybody who's listening can confirm it's often easier to hire outside consultants to do work rather than getting a full-time employee on a project. And that is a huge issue. That is a huge issue because you can't outsource innovation and exploration. It's such a cultural thing as well to allow people the time. I often think about this even in leadership, that if you help a colleague or you lead a colleague or you train them in some way, that's intangible. And often the organization is so fixed on measurement of tangible things that it doesn't give people the time to experiment, even to think. So everybody has a bias towards action because that's what they're measured on, is what have you produced rather than what have you not produced and saved us a fortune because you've minimized the risk? It's even worse than that because you're measured on what you produce for the execution engine. So now let's take the organizations that do this well. Let's look at the positive side. You take a company like Amazon. There are a lot of things they could do better. We can agree on that, but they're really world-class at innovation, probably among the top you know, one, two, three, four companies when it comes to innovation. It's in their DNA. One of the reasons is that their CEO and founder, Jeff Bezos, says to the shareholders, a very strong and loud signal, we are the best place in the world to fail. And the next thing he would say is that innovation, invention, and failure are inseparable twins. You can't win at an innovation if you don't explore and actually fail a lot because that's where the learning comes from. You have to adapt and change until the winners emerge. You can't pick the winners. The winners emerge from experiments. So what they did really well at Amazon is create this space where you're not measured on execution alone, but you're also measured in terms of exploration. They had a lot of big failures, right? The, just think about the Kindle Fire Phone, uh, like <laughs> huge failure. In most companies, teams that fail that big would get fired. At Amazon, you don't get fired for that kind of experimentation and failure because they know it's part of the innovation process. You get allocated to a different team. 
If you fail in building a new warehouse, of course, not so good because that's an execution challenge. No failure allowed. But they experiment a lot. So we need to give people the time and the space. And one thing I'd say, you know, if anybody out there wants to work in innovation or is working in innovation and asks, well, how do I know if my company will innovate or not? There's a very simple measure I take from Rita McGrath, a friend and Columbia scholar. She just came out with a book called Looking Around Corners. If you want to understand if a company can innovate, you need to look at the CEO's time use agenda. If the CEO doesn't invest 40, at least 40 to 50% of his or her time on innovation, innovation will not happen at that company because it's a very symbolic value where the CEO invests his or her time. A CEO who doesn't invest time in innovation every single week will communicate symbolically to the company, innovation does not matter in our company. And if it's not the CEO, it should be a co-CEO. So if you take Ping An as another model example, Peter Ma, the founder, is not the person who's doing the innovation. It's Jessica Tan, co-CEO, who really makes sure that top management attention is spent on innovation. So what's missing in innovation is power and time allocation at the senior leadership level. Just at the beginning of this week, I was in Paris with the CEOs of a top French company. And I said the same thing. I looked them in the eye and said, you guys have to invest 40% of your time, knowing that that's not easy, right? The stock market doesn't usually value that very much. We'd say innovation is about inventing the future. Well, the stock market cares about dividends for the next year. They don't really care about the future that much. You mentioned Rita McGrath. I had Amy Edmondson on the show recently. We were talking about psychological safety. She's the mother of this concept. And I was thinking about what you said about outsourcing to a consultancy firm like Bain, for example, or some research company to get your insights. And she had a beautiful way of putting this. She said, you need to create the environment where the DNA of the company is such that everybody working in the company is a sensor. They're all picking up information from the environment, from the market, and they're feeding that back. And they have the environment in which they can feed that information back. I thought it was a lovely way to consider an environment. But this tees me up for the next part, because even though you walk us through all these different tests, you say how important the team is and how important designing the team is. You said there's five main things you need to consider. The cross-functional skill set, access to missing skill sets, testing tools, entrepreneurial experience, and diversity. And I loved what you said about diversity in particular, because for many organizations, diversity is a tick box exercise based on race or sex or background, but it's diversity of thinking that's so important. And the way you phrase it is a lack of diverse experiences and perspectives on a team will result in baking your biases right into the business. And that's the fear. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> when you have teams who've been you know, in the core business and they're very homogenous and they've never looked outside of the core business, you know, take, I don't know, pharmaceutical or banking, it's very hard for them to, to think outside of the box and to imagine new things. If you don't design diversity into those teams, you're not going to get breakthrough uh, business models or value propositions. The, the aspect that I would put really at the very top is one we underestimate a lot. It's experience doing innovation and entrepreneurship, the sense that this is so different from managing a business. 
your best managers are not necessarily the best explorers. It's actually very rare. And your best explorers will rarely be the best managers. So we kind of know that. Like, oh, that's common sense. Yeah. But if we look at the processes, what happens in many companies is they create an accelerator and then they take people from the execution engine, from the core business, they put them into the accelerator for a week or so. And then, you know, they do project for, for a, a, a project of maybe three months or so. And then they do several phases. But these people come and go from the execution engine. Well, that means you're eternally working with amateurs. It's as if you'd say, yeah, you know, we're going to create the best surgeons by just taking a couple who, who've done, you know, three months of surgery, <laughs> slipping on, I don't know, dead bodies or so. <laughs> they're going to become world-class surgeons. No, you get better at this over time. Nobody has become a world-class entrepreneur overnight. So guess what? Nobody's going to become a world-class innovator overnight. First-time innovators, first-time entrepreneurs are terrible. They're going to make all the mistakes possible. That's why medical students have to deeply study anatomy and physiology first, snip it around on dead bodies before they ever get close to living bodies. So the same attitude needs to be in innovation. Do the same in accounting. So why should this be different? The attitude we today have towards innovation is not a professional one. We say, oh, it's just business. No, it's not. It's very different processes, very different mindset, different tools, different metrics. So we need to take this more seriously. And even if you look at the statistics, the most successful entrepreneurs, we all think, oh, they must be young, right? Silicon Valley. Well, it turns out it's 40 upwards. The average of the successful entrepreneur out there is 40 years upwards. So while the press puts young people, you know, 30 under 30 on the cover of magazines, that's great. But it's actually the, exec the exception in terms of innovation success. Why is it that older people might be very successful in entrepreneurship? It's not because they're old per se, but they have more experience. And they probably have more experience with several ventures. So same in innovation. We need to have some core people who've done this five times, ten times. And they could be surrounded by a diverse team of people who come from the execution engine, from the supply chain, from marketing, etc., but we need some professional innovators. And I like to say that there's a huge opportunity for corporations to create the salaried entrepreneur, which is a very different profile from the crazy entrepreneur who does it outside with VC money, because that's high risk profile is crazy. You put your whole savings and everything on the line. I believe you can have a similar kind of drive with a slightly different risk profile. People who say, I don't want to go that crazy route. I'm driven by entrepreneurship. I'm an explorer, but I want to have something a little bit safer. Or entrepreneurs who've done it once, twice, three times, four times, and they want to work in a different environment with more resources. When I say resources, not just money, it's maybe access to the brand and customers and supply chain of an established company. Because I believe if large corporations figure this out, they have all the assets that they need to crush startups. Today's startups are only winning because large corporations are slow and they don't use their assets. And in terms of funding today, startups are probably better funded than corporate innovation teams because there's so much venture capital money out there. But as soon as established companies get their act together, example, Amazon, example, Ping An, as soon as they get their act together, it's extremely hard to compete against them.
And startups need big corporations sometimes as well because they have markets existing, they have assets, they have logistics and supply chains, all these things in place that the partnership can be a beautiful partnership and then the large organization can learn from the startup and integrate that DNA some way. Absolutely. So a beautiful example is, that, is one that we should all be concerned about, which is climate change. So there are a lot of very interesting startups in the field of climate change, but they can't succeed as a small entity. It's too difficult for them to scale to a level where they have a big impact. And they often get crushed by competitors who don't want them to succeed. So they have to partner with companies who are willing to go into a partnership so they can scale a lot faster. So in that particular domain, a lot of partnerships are emerging between very innovative startups and very established corporations. So I do believe there's a lot corporations can get out of startups. It's one instrument, right? So I like this whole idea of using all the instruments, mergers and acquisitions, homegrown partnerships, um, investment in startups. So I think established companies and leadership teams need to learn how to use the full action set to manage their portfolio beyond the typical big mergers and acquisitions, which is a tool that I don't think is bad per se, but it's just one tool. Investing in startups is a different one. Partnerships is a different one. So senior leadership teams need to get a lot better at managing their portfolios using all of the actions possible, in particular in the innovation field. And you even in this book give us a framework around not only how to select the ideal team for this new DNA, but also how to even run meetings. So I'd love to touch on this, in particular the section on ceremonies, because they're so important within organizations. Let's share that and also your thoughts on co-located versus distributed teams, because we're in a time where we're in a global market. It's an employee's market. So they may go, okay, well, I'll work for you, but I'm going to work from home. So that causes a new way of, a new mode of thinking for many, many organizations that they have to get used to. I'd love to hear your thoughts. So when we wrote this book together with David Bland, who uh, has long experience in this, worked with uh, Eric Ries for a long time and has worked with so many companies you know, in Silicon Valley and beyond, we looked at the process also. It wasn't one goal was to create a testing library, different experiments. But the other goal was to help teams with some of the fundamentals. You know, how many meetings do I have? Um, you know, uh, once a day, the huddle. Uh, once a week with the team, the learning and insight and decision meeting. Do we need to change our value proposition or business model? Then with the growth board, like all those ceremonies you need to put in place to do this systematically. We have so much experience with this that we didn't want people to have to figure out on their own and kind of reinvent the wheel. So we clearly describe the different types of ceremonies and meetings you want to have and what you want to discuss. That is uh, the one aspect. The other aspect is really, you know, how do you invest in these teams also from the leadership perspective? Because you invest into innovation teams in a different way. Well, number one, you invest in evidence. We already covered that one. But you also, after maybe three months of a sprint, you will also stop investing in 50 to 70% of those teams, and you will only do follow-up investments in 30% of those teams. That's very important. That's the role of the growth boards, where you also have a ceremony, and you then need to, as leadership, make clear to those who don't get follow-up investments that this is not a failure. It's normal 
that only 30% get follow-up investment. And you encourage those who didn't get follow-up investments to come back in the next cohort with their next idea. So this is an ongoing thing where sometimes you succeed because your timing was right, because the project was right, the market was good, the pricing is right, you got the technology, you got the differentiation, and very many times you will be wrong, and that's okay. But the whole organization needs to put in place different types of ceremonies from execution and management, that is from managing the core business. So that's important to understand that the ceremonies in innovation and exploration are fundamentally different from those in execution. I thought a great thing to do would be talk about how to select your very first experiment. And here you share some very basic rules of thumb. Yeah, so it's very simple that when you start out, uncertainty and risk is at its maximum, right? Because you're just starting with an idea. You might have some evidence that this is a market opportunity, but you don't really know if it's going to work. You don't know and, and every idea has a different risk profile, but let's assume you don't know if the customer segment is interested, you don't know if the value proposition is going to fly, you don't know if you can make the business model work in terms of uh, channels, revenue streams, activities, etc. So risk is very high. And when risk is very high, your experiments should be very cheap and fast. And you should quickly, quick and dirty, you should get some first insights if there is even anything there where you had a vision. Because Steve Blank likes to say, you got to be careful that your vision is not a hallucination. And the way you check that is with very quick and dirty experiments. So typically, you know, interviews is very good. But even for interviews, you could get more sophisticated. Give you an example. Once you kind of know what your customer's pains are, you can do a simple exercise called Speedboat. It comes from innovation games from a guy called Luke Homan. You put up a visual kind of on the wall, a boat, and you ask your, your interviewees to put anchors for everything that's holding them back from doing a job well, for all the big pains. And the bigger the pain, the lower down they should draw the anchor or put a sticky note on the wall. And what you immediately get is something you can't get from a verbal interview is that you start to see visually what are their biggest pains in relationship to each other. And when the interviewee sees that while they're doing this, they will also have a completely different kind of reaction. They'll put some things really far down and say, this is the biggest, biggest pain. This needs to be all the way at the bottom. So that, those are things that give you pretty quick insights at the beginning. So you start quick and dirty. Now, here's the thing. You start learning if you're right or wrong. The more you learn, the more you can do sophisticated experiments. That means you've decreased the risk. And the more you decrease the risk, the more you can afford to do an expensive experiment, for example, to build something, um, and it might take you more time because you already know you're probably on the right path. You're going to waste less time. Because if you start with building something, you know, even when you do an MVP at quick and dirty, it still takes time. It's still probably going to take more time than talking to people. So you want to start quick and dirty. And the more you know, the less risk and uncertainty there is, the more you can spend time on sophisticated experiments. That's definitely rule of thumb. Another rule of thumb is that you want to test the same hypothesis with several experiments. Let's say, let's take willingness to pay. So first, you could do an interview. You start talking to people. But we all know what people say and what they do, different kind of thing. 
You could do, you know, the usual suspect. If you're in consumer, you could do a landing page. So you can start to ask them to click on a buy button for a certain price. So that's already a little bit stronger evidence. Or for the same hypothesis, start to simulate a sales. And just before this, typically in B2B, you could put a brochure of a non-existing product in front of potential customers, start to have a conversation. There's a price tag on it. And you already start to feel, are they interested or not? And they will say, yeah, but I need a discount or this is too expensive. And you don't even tell them that this is not an existing product. So you can start to have very good feeling of uh, willingness to pay with very different experiments. So rule of thumb is same hypothesis. You test it with different types of experiments. And the more you want to be confident about, you know, is this going to work or not? the stronger the evidence should be, the more experiments you should have. So those are a couple of rules of thumbs that you want to follow. And again, something like 15 to 20 experiments is what professional innovators and entrepreneurs do. It's not just you know, doing a series of interviews that's going to validate an idea. I still see this in the field because this is not yet in a, a profession. So people should get a lot better at this. This is why it needs to be baked into the DNA and you give even a sequence. How do you sequence these different experiments? And what do you do for each different industry? Even, for example, highly regulated industries like pharma and banking, that they can experiment as well. We won't have time to go into that today. Alex, there's a story that comes from Napoleon Hill's Think and Grow Rich about a guy called Oryu Darby. And what Napoleon Hill tells is this guy, Darby, wanted to capitalize on the gold rush. So he bought a load of equipment, had access to some land, spent months and weeks mining this land for gold. And at one stage, he decided it was hopeless. So he sold all his equipment to a junk man. Now, the junk man believed perhaps there was still gold in the land. So he decided to dig a little further. Three feet later, he discovers gold, one of the biggest strikes there was in this territory. Darby had given up just when he was three feet from gold. And for many of our listeners, they're entrepreneurs, they work in startups, perhaps they're corporate entrepreneurs. The question often comes to people's mind, when do I give up the ghost? Or in your world, when do I pivot? When do I persevere? And when do I kill? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a false assumption there is that you can pivot yourself to success, right? And that, you know, if you just pivot enough, you're going to find gold. If we look at the reality in particular in corporations, there's actually too little killing of ideas and that prevents the winners to emerge. So what you want to do is you want to understand you can't pick the winner. You're not going to find that spot where gold is. You need a different approach. You actually need to spread your bets. You need to make many small bets at the beginning, many, many small bets. And then after you know three months, you reduce those small bets you made at the beginning. You go from 10 maybe to 5 or 3, right? And then again, you do the same thing. You go from 3 to 1. That's how the winners emerge. Now, the question is, how many small bets do I need to make? Let's say if I'm a corporation, in how many teams do I need to invest $100,000 each to create one outlier, one big success, like $500 million success or a billion-dollar revenue success? How many teams? The data from early stage venture capital shows you you'd have to invest in 250 teams 
of which 168 will outright fail, and then a small portion of that will know some success, only one out of 250 will be the outlier. So rather than saying, I'm going to you know, keep on digging with that one team, you actually need to have 250 gold diggers, and then from those 250, only one will strike gold, only one will find gold. That's the way venture capital works. That's the way innovation investment in corporations should work. You can't pivot yourself to success. What you can do is create an innovation funnel where you will fail enough for the winners to emerge. So when corporate leaders say, Alex, which team do I invest in? Which idea do I invest in? I say, you don't. You invest in a portfolio. And if you have that kind of funnel with phases where you're constantly weed out the losers based on lack of evidence and you invest in the winner who have most evidence, most traction, not the most beautiful slide deck, then two things will happen. You will weed out the bad ideas and the winning ideas will come out on top and you will weed out the teams that are not entrepreneurial and the winning teams will come out on top. And this is not to say, you know, those teams that didn't succeed were silly or stupid. There was just nothing there. They couldn't find gold when there was no gold. So that's how you pick the winner. And that is how venture capital worked. And that's what we need to get into corporations. Besides the typical corporate finance to run the business, we need to create a mini venture capital firm within. And I'm, this is different from corporate venture capital. We're investing in our own teams internally. It needs to be in the DNA. Corporate venture capital never made it into the DNA of companies. So don't get me wrong. This is a different thing. That's how you pick the winners, not by thinking you can pick, but by investing in a portfolio. So you will have not return on investment of a team, you will have return on investment of a portfolio. That's how we diversify risk in, in finance. That's exactly how you diversify risk in innovation as well. And Alex, for people who want to find out more about your work, Strategizer, the books, etc., where can they find you? We give a lot away on strategizer.com. So you can go there. There's the blog. There's tons of resources to download. We always give a quarter of each book away for free so people can get a teaser. They're very visual books. So you can shape your opinion if you like it. They're YouTube videos. So just Google also strategizer or Alex Osterwalder and you'll find a ton of free resources, but also online courses and so that you can get if you want to go a bit deeper author of Testing Business Ideas, a field guide for rapid experimentation. Alex Osterwalder, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. This was fun.